Thank you for joining us for the All Access Coaches Corner podcast. We are so excited to continue serving coaches, sharing their stories, and spotlighting their programs. Stay connected as we bring you more special guests and more real conversations covering all aspects of the game. You can find our show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at allaccess underscore cc. Subscribe to the All Access Network YouTube channel and join us in the All Access Coaches Corner. Today we sit down with Jason Hart, Associate Head Coach from Southern Cal. Jason was recently voted the number one assistant coach in the Pac-12 Conference from his peers reported by Stadium. In the year 2000, Jason was drafted in the NBA. He went on to have a 10-year NBA career. A Syracuse grad, he still holds the record for all-time steals. He's a husband and a father of two boys. Jason sits down and shares his journey from his playing career to his coaching career and why he is soon on his way to being a head coach. I want to take time to acknowledge one of our partners, Rising Coaches. Every coach wants to rise in their career in one way or another. We're all looking for professional development, access to tools, and relationships that can help us grow and help us advance in our career. Rising Coaches provides just that. You can visit Rising Coaches at www.risingcoaches.com. Their memberships are just $10 a month and provides a genuine community to help you grow and advance in your career. Okay, everyone, welcome to All Access Coaches Corner with Rising Coaches. Uh, please visit risingcoaches.com, www.risingcoaches.com for, uh, to look into their membership, just $10 a month. Uh, a lot of great benefits, a lot of great networking tools, uh, over 10,000 videos that you can learn from, and then obviously access to Zooms and great things like this. So great, uh, great tool to invest in for your career. Got an awesome special guest, um, one of the best coaches in the country, Looking forward to him being a head coach very soon. Um, I'm going to actually put Coach Wilson on the spot as a Cali guy to help me introduce real quick, and then I'll piggyback on the back end. You can't have a guy like Coach Wilson on the Zoom and not give him a chance to get the mic. So, uh, Well, you mean an old guy like me? That's what you mean? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, exactly I, I, what I mean. I'll, I'll be brief, man. Um, I got to know Jay... Uh, gosh, Jay, that was about eight years ago, nine years ago. Uh, I didn't know him, but I knew of him. I actually saw it play in high school and college and you know, being an L.A. guy and all that stuff. But I knew he wanted to get in the coaching business. Uh, again, know, when, when you know his, his journey in the NBA uh, of all the different teams that he played for, uh, it, it tells you that he's, he's persistent. He's consistent. He's going to work hard. He's going to be a good guy. And people wanted to keep him on a team. Uh, with nine years, 10 years, Jay, correct me if I'm wrong. But, but that, that said a lot. And, and I saw what he did with his high school team and his AAU team. So I had an opportunity to, uh, to, to, to reach out and try to, try to hire someone. So I had a chance to go sit. I want to say two or three times, Jay, and I yeah. met 
for lunch and just to get to know him. And I, and I knew that he would be a great fit for us and our staff at Pepperdine when I was there. Uh, but I knew he was going to be a star uh, in this in this uh, in this business. So I was only able to keep him for one year, and uh, he's been at, at SC kicking butt. And now I got to try to try to keep up with him. So uh, I'm excited for you, my man. I'm li- looking forward to listening to you. Thank you, Coach. I really appreciate this. All right, bud. Yeah, absolutely. Want to make sure Coach Wilson got a chance to show love to one of his one of his guys. Um, yeah, it just goes without saying. You know, I, I grew up. Watching Jay Hart play at Syracuse uh, with Bayheim and the Zone, um, definitely grew up watching him playing with him on the video game. You know, we're not that far in age, but uh, much respect. I met him. I think I met you at the Think Tank with Deidre Taylor uh, out in Cali uh, when I was at Fresno State and got to know him a little bit. And uh, he's doing a lot of great things, not only with basketball, but uh, with the with uh, some social injustice things and some equality things as well, which I let him touch on. But uh, just recently voted number one assistant in the Pac-12 by his peers, um, future head coach, former NBA player, just an all-around great dude and one of Cali's best. So excited to have him on. I'll give him some opening thoughts, and then we'll start some questions. Um, Brian, I appreciate you having me on. Um, this is an honor to be on, to share with our peers and uh, network, as you said, and, and just to you know share ideas. Um, my journey started, like Coach Wilson said, about eight or nine years ago. Coach high school, um, coach a little AAU, and, and wanted to get into the business of a college because uh, I believe student athletes, um, when they're done bas- playing basketball, they got the opportunity to really change their environment, change their world, and help help everyone. So being in an educational background is something that I want to do. Um, reached out to Marty, ha- had a guy named Dana Pump call, call Coach Wilson and just let him know how much I want to be on his staff. And he gave me the opportunity. So without him, I wouldn't be here uh, today for sure. Um, other than that, man, we, we started a, a program called uh, Black Coaches Association. We haven't launched our program in, in, in its entirety yet, but it's a, it's a place, a support group for from high school coaches all the way to Division I uh, to three, JUCO, NAIA, um, every type of coach that's willing to come and, and sit down and learn from each other, share stories and be a support group, but also go over specific things that, that affect um, African-American coaches. And one of them being obviously hiring practice, mental health for, for coaches and student athletes, and um, just coming together and, and, and being a, a lending voice when, when we go through our struggles. So that's, that's what we've been doing since this whole quarantine. I think it's been helpful and it's bridging a lot of gaps and, and we're moving forward. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I've been a part of uh, one meeting. I think I missed the first one I was invited to, wasn't able to make it, but been a part of one. And great, great things going down. Uh, great team of uh, board members and members and students are going to continue to grow. So definitely appreciate you giving that shout out for what you're doing. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the, this, this pandemic. Everybody's been going through it. How's it been for your family? Do you have any funny stories from spending so much time at home with your boys? Uh, and then tell us about your family after that. Well, the pandemic, just like uh, everybody else, it, it affected, you know, your ability to get out and, and socialize. I think uh, we all learned a lot about ourselves because we have to spend more time alone. You spend more time with your family, your kids. So you get to see the world uh, differently, but it also makes you reflect and, and see what this, what life is all about. And, and you kind of have to change your agenda and your priorities. So I think it's been great for me. I got a chance to build with my own kids. 
um, being I'm not on the road recruiting or coaching. And that's been great. Uh, I'm comfortable where I'm at in terms of uh, not having basketball. I've been doing it my whole life, so I'm comfortable where I'm at right now. For sure, for sure. Any any funny stories, any driveway one-on-one stories, any any uh, video game stories that got you on the sticks, they embarrassing you? What, what, what we got going at the Howard household? And just a lot of, uh, well, the noise level was high because I'm very loud. So I guess the noise level was high. My wife constantly tell me uh, I'm talking too loud. But we really ain't got no funny stories, man. We we on program. Everybody get up, eat breakfast, and then go back to their uh, uh, computers or, or phones. And, and other than that, we just try to stay around the house, get out a little bit to the grocery store. But shoot, it's not not really much we can do. We'll go swimming from time to time, but I don't, I don't got no stories just yet. Yeah, yeah, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Tell us, uh, so we know you're a Cali guy. Tell us about growing up playing ball. Tell us how you ended up choosing Syracuse. Tell us about your you just kind of your college and, and, and time, and we'll go to NBA next. Well, uh, I'm, I'm born and raised in South Central Los Angeles. Uh, I went to uh, two high schools. My home school is Crenshaw. My mom wanted me to kind of get out the area. So I went to Westchester High School for my first three years, and then my senior year, I transferred to Inglewood. Um, I was, after, I guess you could say nationally, I was a sleeper when it came to basketball. Um, I got my first... Uh, offer after I went to the Adidas camp and that was going into my senior year. So I was, I wasn't unknown nationally. I thought I was pretty good locally, but you know, nobody uh, was saying my name. I wasn't getting recruited. So it took a, a invite to Sonny Vaccaro's uh, ABCD Adidas camp. And uh, that's where I caught the eye of uh, colleges and earned my first uh, scholarship offer. Um, how I got to Syracuse from LA um, when Bayham uh, gave me that offer, I had no other schools uh, that I liked that I would want to attend. Plus the playing opportunity, that was the best situation for, for me. Um, I was able to go there as a freshman, obviously, and play. And that was, that's what I was looking for as a freshman. So from L.A. to Syracuse, the journey was, was great. Um, I got a chance to go away from home and mature and uh, create a, a lifelong bond with the school. Still got a lot of friends there. So for, for me, it was a great move. And now that I'm done playing basketball, I'm back home in my native Los Angeles, California. Yeah, was it? Did it come down a, a home school versus a, a East Coast school, or was it always kind of like Syracuse when they got in that you just kind of knew? Well, no, actually, um, you know, back in like '94, '95, Ty, Ty Bozeman at, at Cal was was he had it rolling, and that was that was my first priority. And then the situation happened with him, and and you know, Syracuse is the next best option for me. Um, the local schools really, I, I didn't really get you know recruited by them heavy until I went to camp back east. So by that time, I was already in my feelings and, and I was looking elsewhere, you know, after that. So now you kind of take it out on some of the local schools when you get to coach against them. Is that what it is? <laughs> uh, well, you know, not, 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 not so much. I mean, you know, if, if, if you're a local kid and you attend one of the local schools, I'm, I'm going to root for you at the end of the day, whether we win or not. I just want kids to be successful and get a chance to play college sports and more importantly, get their degree. So I'm rooting for you either way. For sure. For sure, love it, man. Um, tell us about uh, the process from when you finished playing to getting drafted, kind of going through that. Did you know you were going to be a draft pick? Um, obviously, you got drafted, so you weren't one of the guys that um, had to go to camp and get signed that way. So did you know you were going to get drafted? Did you know kind of that process? And then tell us about your NBA career, kind of like Coach Wilson said. You've been on a lot of teams, had a lot of value. People continue to want to sign you, and, and you found a niche, which is hard to do in the NBA. So tell us a little bit about that. 
Well, the goal was to get drafted ever since I was in the second grade. Just like many kids, uh, we all strive to get to that next level. Um, one thing I learned early in my own basketball journey is, uh, you know, be careful who you tell your dreams to. Um, told one of my dreams to somebody and, and you know, they obviously said that's not going to happen. So I, you, I think more important, you got to protect your dream. You don't have to tell everybody. You just got to work towards it. Um, being that I went to Syracuse and it was such a, a, a basketball um, environment school, I knew I had a chance if I just can continue to get better and, and more importantly, help my team win. Um, I was expecting to get drafted. So me getting drafted, it, it, it wasn't a surprise because, uh, like I said, it was a dream of mine. But making it and, and lasting in, in the NBA was, was the challenge. Um, when I did get drafted to the Milwaukee Bucks in 2000, um, obviously I played point guard and played a lot of minutes at Syracuse. But when I got there, it was a guy named Sam Cassell was the starting point guard. Lindsey Hunter was his backup. And then Ray Frost and Skip Tumalu was the third guy. So right then, I didn't even think I was going to make the team. So you, you, to stick in the NBA, you better learn what you do good early. And um, I was able to kind of identify with what my strengths were to stick around in camp. And that's what kept me in the league. I, I, I knew how to make teams, but I knew what teams was looking for and I knew what they needed. And to find a niche is easy. You just got to humble yourself and continue to get better each day and, you know, just be a good teammate. So that, that's kind of how I carried out my role in the NBA. And then when I got my opportunity uh, to play freely um, in 2004 with the Charlotte Bobcats, then, then I was able to showcase a little bit more. Yeah, that's an awesome story. And a couple of questions just following up on that is, one, how much does that help you when you're recruiting high-level guys to USC, you know, your experience? And then, you know, we know this. Most of us as coaches, probably 80% of the league is made up of role players. But you talked about accepting that role, finding a role, but then later on in your career getting to play and play freely. So tell us a two-part question, but tell us a little bit about how that helps you recruit guys and then also just – how were you able to kind of find your niche? What was your niche? And then obviously you talked about humbling yourself, but um, that process is really hard to do. So, so how did you come about that? Well, recruiting guys to, to, to USC, I mean, every, every player, their goal is to, to go to the NBA. So for, for, for me as a coach, I'm never going to tell you that you're not going to go or you don't have a chance. Um, in today's game, more than ever, any player at any school can make it to the NBA. And I kind of use that as a as a uh, as a way to, to 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 start bonding with a player. I mean, none of these kids want to hear opposite. So one of the things we can relate to is that I did play. I wasn't a superstar, but if that's one of your goals, I can show you how to work hard. You know, while mixing that with a USC education. Um, the second part about finding a niche or finding a role, humble. I don't think no 18 year old is ready to be humble just yet. So using the term role playing or or, or playing some type of role never ever comes out of my mouth because um, I just think it's important that you keep their spirits up and you don't want to deter them from um, showing you what they have. It's not a lot of kids that go pro from college, but I tend to want to keep them on that track that they are going and they do have a poss uh, possibility of making it. Humbling yourself, um, George Carl taught me that in, in my rookie year. He would always tell you know the Ray Allen and Glenn Robinsons and Sam Cassells that basketball will humble you whether uh, on the court or off the court. And I just use that as part of me, as part of my DNA now. I think if you just walk around with that humbleness on a daily basis, uh, when, when you go through those tough times in life, you don't have to change for other people because you already carried yourself in a way where you respect it. So I just think that 
being a humble person and on a daily basis will get you farther in life than being like cocky. For sure, for sure. What was your niche? Cause what, what did you find a niche to be able to say? Cause you talked about three point guards when you first got there. I'm assuming you probably had to learn how to play other positions than just point guard. Uh, most of the time role guys have to be, or, or guys that aren't the, the front line, you know, franchise guys usually have to be guys that are defend and great team. Well, my niche was, I was a great defender. And I took pride in it. So um, for me to stick in the NBA, one thing for every player to stick in the NBA, you have to show what you do well. And what you do well is obviously your niche. So I was a great defender. Um, I was tough. And as the, my career went on, I was, I was able to become, a, become an open um, shot maker. I was able to make a 19, 20-footer consistently. And I was able to uh, play defense and, and show toughness and, and, and grit. And so that was my niche. Um, like I said, I carved that out for nine years. And, you know, when, when you have a niche, that's, that's part of your game. You do it easily because that's who you are. And obviously you work on your weaknesses, but that's what I can, they can depend on me and what I showed every night. That's awesome. That's awesome. And definitely a winning, winning characteristic. So that's what makes you also be able to get picked up on other teams. It's like this guy understands who he is. We want to win and he can help us do that. Um, what's one last thing you say about the NBA that's like a misconception for either coaches or players that haven't played in it based on what they see on television or what gets glamorized? What would you say is kind of a, you know, just something that's a misconception that, hey, you think it's like this, but really it's like this? Well, I, I just think that since they make so much money, sometimes they're, they're, people don't look at them as like regular people, um, like you and I. I think that the NBA is a real brotherhood. Uh, it's a fraternity and uh, everybody is pulling for each other regardless of, of circumstance. And um, the brotherhood is really real. When one is down, they all try to lift each other up. And then from, from the coach's standpoint, um, being able to deal with men with egos is, is totally different from, from college or high school. The coaches do not run, run, the, run the show, the players do, because they have more leverage in terms of uh, their star power. So the unique thing about being an NBA coach is more like business partners. And college is like dictatorship, small country. And I think the coaches uh, do a great job in dealing with egos and, and being able to relate uh, to the players because, you know, they, they held us such a high esteem. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for that. Thanks for sharing that. Um, we know social justice and, and racial equality um, opportunities uh, can go on and on, but Tell us a little bit about just kind of what you've had some thoughts on in this this recent time since George Floyd's uh, tragic murder. And um, just we obviously know some of the stuff you're doing with BCA. But just tell us anything you'd like to share because, you know, I know that's a subject that's near and dear to your heart. Well, what's happened to George Floyd and so many others is, uh, you know, the, the police brutality of, of unarmed um, African-Americans. I think it hit near and dear to me because my son is – I'm in the process of buying him a car and he's going to be driving soon. So I know he's going to come into contact with the police one way or another. And so for me to continue to raise awareness, you know, I have one that's in the field. He's in the world now, he, he, both of my sons. And when they do go to LA and visit my mom or visit other family members, you just want them to be safe. And um, whatever I can do on my platform to, to promote awareness, um, that's what I'm going to continue to do because uh, this is a fight that's, that's been going on since the beginning. 
And uh, it's something that we have to keep alerting people that uh, it has to change because not everybody is, is criminally uh, intended to do something. Well said, well said. Um, let's talk USC. Let's talk USC. What, what makes USC, other than it being your home, what makes it a special place? Well, USC is a, it's kind of like, for me, man, it was, it was, a, it was a job that obviously, uh, you know, it was, a, it was, when we did get hired, Tony Bland and myself, um, we knew it would be a challenge to get the program back to where um, it was respectable. Uh, it's always been a school that's been in our backyard. So it's kind of like the home school. I, I grew up about maybe three miles from USC. And I would, you know, as a kid, go up there and go swimming and play basketball in the open runs. But USC is a special place because basketball-wise, the tradition has always been spotty. So the goal was to make it respectable and try to recruit as much local homegrown talent as possible and turn that into their school. And that's what we try, we've been trying to carry out these last seven, eight years. Absolutely. Um, and definitely enough talent there to be able to keep it home. Uh, what, what have you found to be the challenge to kind of get over the hump? Is it just getting the first one and then everybody else comes or what, what has it been? Well, the challenge is, you know, in, in the Pac-12, it's a tough league and everybody has good players. I, I just think that the school was able to give uh, Coach Enfield some stability and he's been there for seven, eight years. And when parents can see that a coach is going to be there and, and you got some type of winning formula, it, it'd be, it draws recruits, but also uh, showing the recruits that they can continue to get better. I mean, obviously, we don't get the same level of talent as Kentucky, Kansas, and Duke. So our, our, our whole goal is to develop young men on and off the court and uh, put a product on the, on, the floor, on the floor that everybody be proud of. Yeah, you mentioned Coach Enfield, and most of us know his famous run at Florida Gulf Coast that led him to getting the job there. Uh, what do you think it is, if you had to say three things that makes him an elite coach to be able to establish that kind of stability at that high level, have success at a lower level, um, and continue to build what you guys are building there. What do you think it is that makes him believe if you had to say three things? Um, understanding the culture, um, being able to, to, to listen, and just, uh, he has an offensive, uh, uh, offensive skill set in his head that, uh, that he executes pretty well. So um, those are the three things I think that, that is his strength, being able to execute like that and allowing us to have a voice. Which was very important. That keeps all coaches, any coach at any level, keeps you motivated. So it allows us to have a voice. So we, we feel motivated and feel a part of. Absolutely, absolutely. That's important. Um, as you talk about the voice, tell us about the staff. Who else you worked with? Well, when we first took over the job, uh, he he went out on a limb, man. He hired three young black assistant coaches, and to try to turn the program around, he took a lot of heat for that because. None of us had that much of experience and uh, coaching at that level. And so he took a lot of uh, uh, heat. It was Kevin Norris. Um, he's, a, he's now the associate head coach at Central Florida. Obviously, Tony Bland and uh, Jason Hart. So um, for us, man, we use it as motivation. What we didn't know, we just said we was going to supplement that with hard work. And um, obviously, he was like one of the only coaches in, in the Pac-12 to have three young black assistants. So he... He kind of raised the bar as far as his counterparts, but it paid out for him because he was able to uh, get in and recruit and, and be able to relate to the community. Yeah, well, well said. Well said. It seems like he's the type of guy that wouldn't be afraid to 
kind of do something outside the box. That's kind of what makes him good as well, it seems like. Um, tell us something that you love that you guys do in these four categories. Uh, offensively, something that you love. Defensively, something you love. Something in recruiting and then something in your culture, specifically at your... Well, offensively, man, I, I love that we, we run pick and rolls. So it's a point guard's dream. Um, if you're a point guard, you're going to get 40 pick and rolls per game. Defensively, I love that, uh, you know, he's a man coach. He allowed us to uh, put the Syracuse 2-3 zone in. Um, recruiting, I, I love that all four coaches recruit. Um, we passed the stage of just my guy, your guy. I love that we all piggyback and share the responsibility. And uh, the last one was what? Uh, culture and your culture. Oh, I like our culture where, where every, every voice is heard. Um, if you have an opinion, you have something that you feel uh, confident about, we encourage our players, coaches, everybody to speak up and hold firm in what you believe in. And that's what creates an open, uh, good working environment. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, looking forward to more big things you guys are going to do there. Um, so excited that you home and the hometown guy. I'm sure they got to love that. So as, as it's, it's kind of a question we didn't talk about, but how much does being a hometown guy uh, that has had so much success help you in recruiting or in relationships in recruiting? Well, it does help. I mean, I think that uh, I, I know a lot of people in Los Angeles and I stick close to, to L.A. a lot. But more importantly, man, I, I go around the city trying to help kids uh, have an e educational background when they're done playing basketball. And that's the most important thing right, right there. We, we can't play sports right now, so what do you have? So my goal is to go around and find the next uh, young talent who wants to mix his athleticism with education. And uh, you can do it right here in L.A. And I think that's what I've become an ambassador of uh, education. What, what's something, Jay, um, that you would say for yourself specifically, right? So a lot of uh, assistant coaches, we get put in boxes as recruiters or maybe even um, just guys that handle the guys on campus. Um, obviously, we all know that we're more than that, but the perceptions and the narratives kind of point that direction many times. So you were recently voted the top assistant in your conference by your peers, which is a big deal because it's your peers saying it. So what would you want people to know about you more than just, hey, man, he's a, he can recruit, he's a good guy, and he played the NBA, you know? Well, well, for me, just that was an honor to, uh, to, to get that, that uh, recognition from my peers because during the game, I make it my business not to try to stand up and act like a fool to try to steal the spotlight. Um, from, from, from the head coach. Um, I think the biggest thing that, that uh, you know, I, I am labeled as a recruiter. And I was talking to Paul Hewitt uh, about two, three weeks ago, and I expressed that to him. And he told me, don't be ashamed of it. He said, uh, Mike Hopkins was a recruiter. Sean Miller was a recruiter. Archie Miller was a recruiter. Calipari was a recruiter. So he told me more to, to, to cherish that part and, and continue to recruit and recruit at a high level. And so that kind of took the ease from me. I know that uh, young black assistants, we all get that title, but we're more than that as well. And we, we can't go out and verbally tell people, so our actions have to show, show what we do in terms of all our players graduating and how they carry themselves when they leave our program. Super well said, Coach. Awesome. Um, what would you say to your younger self as you started in the business? Obviously, you kind of had a – Quick ride. You weren't afraid to do high school and AU. You just had a love for the game and you had a purpose you were you were focused on. What would you say to your younger self or somebody younger if your son chose to 
get into it, similar to what Coach Wilson's son is doing, what would you tell a younger version of yourself? Have patience. Um, it's not anything in life is not going to happen overnight. So just have patience and enjoy the work, enjoy the progress, enjoy your journey, and, and just have patience. Um, you know, just take every day. Don't take every day for granted and just, you know, continue to have patience. Yeah, that's big time. That's probably one of the hardest things to do when you get in this thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because we all get antsy and we all want to get to the top, but if you enjoy where you're at and, and try to be the best where you're at, I think that that would kind of, you know, lead you to have more patience. Um, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at and obviously I want to continue to grow, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just enjoying my, my ride. Yeah, so kind of going back to your humility, not a lot of people uh, that have played the NBA and played high major basketball and had the success you had would want to do the lower levels that you've done. So there's also within that patience, there's just a love of the game that is so obvious with you. You know, no matter who you are watching, I think everybody knows how much you just love the game and love to help young people be better. So much respect for that. Um, what, what would you say is your why in coaching, coach? And what, you, what is something that's important to you as far as your legacy is concerned? Well, my why in coaching is, is helping student-athletes of all uh, races become better men and in which that would turn to become better husbands, better people in, in their society through the game of basketball. I think that uh, the game has gifted me with so much. I've met so many people across this whole world. And to be able to share and touch individuals from different backgrounds is, is, is key for me. So my why is, is to help young men become grown men once they leave our program. Yep. Powerful coach. Um, and it's evident with how you live your life. The awesome part about it. Some people say it, but you definitely live it. So I, I salute you on that as well. Um, so you've worked for a lot of, you've worked and played for in the NBA, a lot of different great, great coaches. You talked about George Carl, Coach Wilson's on the call. We've talked about Coach Enfield. If you had to take one characteristic from each, just maybe say five or six guys, what's one thing you would take from each guy when you become a head coach? Well, Bernie Bickerstaff, he was he was the father figure. Um, he would let he was like your, your dad. He'd let you make your mistakes and then correct you afterward. Uh, Rick Adelman, I, I admired his uh, his quietness. He he coached everything in silent and what he never raised his tone. He was able to get through his players. Um, Mike Dun Dunleavy, he has he has a array of offensive plays, sets, um, and, and his style. Uh, Greg Popovich. He, he, one thing that he did and, and still does to this day, he, he includes everybody. You know, most coaches, when you play your first seven, you rarely have time for eight, nine, 10, 11. So one of his biggest strengths was uh, allowing you to feel like you was a part of the team, but also wasn't scared to throw you in the game at any moment. And then uh, Jerry Sloan, rest in peace. He, he was a man of men. So every time he seen you, he greeted you, he shook your hand. And uh, he greeted you. He never judged you on levels of your playing skills, but also gave you that respect as a grown man. So those are the things I would take from those guys and try to add it to, to, to me and my person as a coach. Yeah, well said, Coach. Well said. If you had to say one last question, if you had to say something about yourself becoming a head coach to somebody who may watch it, to somebody who may think like, man, he's next up, um, what would you say – just in general about yourself, maybe your philosophy, maybe your readiness, maybe your, um, you know, your conviction of when you are in that seat. Obviously, we know you're content where you are. You're, you're not antsy or looking forward and you're not trying to self-promote. But 
if somebody just wanted to ask that question, you know, what makes you ready? What makes you be able to be great? What, what's your thoughts when you are becoming a head coach? What would you say to them? Well, uh, I, I think one of the keys is you don't have an experience as a head coach because I've never been one. So the one thing I want to guarantee uh, whatever AD hired me is that uh, the hard work and the diligent and, and the player respect is something I want to thrive on. Obviously, everybody talks culture, but family family atmosphere, family uh, environment is something I want to incorporate, and I just want to be me. I don't want to get a job um, having to have be somebody different in the interview. I want an AD to hire me for me. That way, it'll be a better working relationship. A lot of times, you know, guys go in and get jobs, and they're totally different people, and then when they start losing, they three or four games, they become a different person. So I want somebody to hire me for me, and hopefully that, that would trans, translate well with the program. Yeah, that's awesome. Well said, Coach. Well said. Let's let's uh, open up the room for questions. Coach, we'll do some basketball breakdown uh, in the second half of the segment, but want to let you guys interact with Coach as well. Obviously, we know how top shelf he is, but, yeah, let's make sure we have some good questions for him and, and engage with him. Beyond to kick it off, I got a question for Coach. Um, and, I, and I also want to add this first, too. Uh, Jay, I, I just appreciate you, man, for being what you've been for me in my young career. Uh, like Coach Berger was saying, like, your humility and your humbleness, like, it, it's, it's almost, like, laughable almost because I think me growing up being a young dude in L.A., knowing who you are, and then be able to know you the way I know you has been, uh, has been really good. And I remember even, uh, Coach Wilson, how you doing? Like when I was at Mayfair, Coach Wilson was at Utah at the time. And Jay, you don't remember this, but I remember when Coach Hart was the coaching at well, SEA. And I was working the scoreboard table. And we chopped it up talking. And obviously he don't know who I am, but like Shane Bahannon was playing at the time. Uh, so that's how far I remember back. And then fast forward into now, the impact you've made on my life, um, especially before going to work for Coach Hop, who you played for. In our relationship now, man, I appreciate you. Um, yeah, and uh, but the question though, uh, in terms of you saying like the role player role for kids and that type of deal, how would you say recruiting is now, given social media, um, now whole deal and selling USC and kids being able to see that okay, well, you say I'm not a role player, but you also offer this kid and that kid and this kid, um, and still being in the conversation and just your whole thought about that notion of, you know not telling kids they're going to come in just sit in the corners and threes, but, you know, somebody got to do it, but also get them to come to campus and, I guess, do their thing. Well, the role of recruiting with social media is, is, is obviously a, ch a challenge for all of us. I think a lot of kids live vicariously through social media. So in, in, in the end, they're going to think they're better than what they are, which is fine because you want to keep a kid confident. But the reality of it is um, we're going to recruit three of everything. And the first one we, that commits, that's the one we're going to take. And we also have to keep it a competitive environment. So if, if you're saying you want to go to the NBA, you're that good, you shouldn't be afraid to come and compete. And so uh, uh, that's our motto. And then a lot of times for me with the social media, I just let, you know, want to let kids know that it's okay to not have a good day at the gym. Social media, you can be great every day. But if you're not getting challenged, and, you know, Jason Crow was one of my, my peers. We worked out together. Some days he got the best of me. And so I don't think social media allows kids uh, to have down days in basketball, which is a bummer for them because reality, you know, sticks when they get to college, man, when they're not having success. There's no more videos to retweet. 
It's no more Instagrams to post. So uh, we just try to recruit the, the best possible kid character-wise and just kind of let them know that uh, you got to come in and compete. Jay, I got one. <clears throat> question, Jay, good question. I got one. I got one for him, B. Uh, obviously, Jay, you've been around me a little bit. Um, I've been around you and your family, beautiful wife. You, I don't want to say your little boys anymore. Uh, I see those photos on Instagram. There's been damn near eyeball to eyeball with you. How, how do you, and if you could probably touch on it, uh, I know there's a lot younger guys on there. Can you touch on balancing the family, which I know is really important to you, um, and, and the recruiting and the travel and the coaching and the being away from home, if you can touch on that. Well, that was one of the things I asked you when I, when I, when I got hired and you told me, uh, when you get home, some days the phone is off um, because you know everybody wants so much of your time. So I just learned early on, I learned it from you early in my career when I first got started that when you get home, you're at home. And when you're at work, you're at work. And so I just tried to separate the two and tried to give my, my wife and my kids um, the best of me when I get home. It's tough, but you know I've learned to turn that phone off and just put it on mute and just kind of deal with my, my family when, I, when I'm home. And I try not to mix the two. Coach Hart, this is the real Robinson yeah, Dan's on high school in Denver, Illinois. Uh, going off the same thing, similar to what Coach Wilson was saying. Now, I just returned home, like my alma mater. I came back, you know, for the big picture because where I'm from, it's a little rough. You know, it's grimy. So my big thing is, like, trying to make sure the young men, I, I teach them to be prepared for when they leave, you know, they're good. Uh, how do you deal with being home? You know, like, being home... You, you know what I mean. Like, being home is great. You know, you get all the love and stuff. At the same time, though, all that love is like, you know, people think because you're cool with them that it's going to be a little favoritism and things of that nature. You know what I'm saying? I know your phone probably ringing off the hook with a lot of stuff. So how do you deal with being at home? Man, I, I don't look at it as a negative. I think it's a blessing for me to be at home, being that my parents are yeah, getting older. Yeah. Being that my parents are getting older, mom and dad, um, brothers, I, I get the chance to spend more time with, with him. Now, as far as my friends outside of the sports world, my buddy just came home. He did 15 years. He just came home from jail. And, you know, his expectation may be different from me. But um, other than that, I, I don't try to, like, run from where I'm from. I try to stay, uh, stay, right. stay in my community. So it's no, it won't, nothing has changed, you know, since, you know, since I grew up there. So I, I just try to stay in. I don't try to get out. I try to stay in and, and keep everything grounded. And that's where I want to be. So I, I love being home for me, man. Gotcha. Yeah. Coach, uh, got a question for you. This is Serge down in New York, Marist College. What's, What's going on, champ? Um, All right. What are, what are a couple characteristics you, that you're looking for um, in an assistant when you eventually get your position? A coaching position. What are a couple characteristics are you looking for in an assistant? Um, a shared vision, obviously, with the head coach. You, you gotta you gotta believe in what he what he's selling. I think a lot of times uh, we we as young assistants we have a lot of ambition, and we wanna we wanna do things our way, you know. But as an assistant, I, I've learned that if we're gonna run play A, shit, my job is to we're gonna I'm gonna teach play A the best I can. And so that, that, that shared vision is, is, is very important because you want to make your, your, your boss look good. And if you look good, if he looks good, you will look good. Another thing, man, is, is very important is loyalty. 
Um, I see a lot of times in our business where, you know, we're on the road and you hear sisters talking shit about their bosses. So that, that let me know a lot about that person, that coach. And that's just something that I've learned, man. Loyalty and shared vision are the two, uh, two things I think are important for, for a young, young assistant or assistant coach just in general. Thank you. Yep. Jay, I got a question. Great. Uh, in regards to right now, we're in a pandemic. Is a kind of displaced. I know some of them are. What What are you guys teaching? What What is one of the most important things you would say? Look, we need you guys to to lock into this right now. We We don't know what's going on. But need you guys to lock in and take advantage of this time. So that's for that's you talking about for our college players, Jay? Yeah, yeah, for your college players at USC. Well, right now, man, since since we can't get can't have them on the court or or, or can't be near them, the whole focus right now is, is is academics. And then obviously it's more film work that we do now. And then for me, for me, is, is building relationship with players that I didn't recruit. You know, a lot of times, um, you know, if it's your guy, you brought a guy in, you would deal with him. So one of the things we all try to do this with this pandemic as a staff is to get to know the players outside of basketball. So when we do return, we'll have some form of relationship with them and it'll be an easier, smoother transition. So just getting to know who they are, some of their likes, some of their dislikes, and uh, building a strong relationship with them. And then obviously, letting them know how important uh, academics is being that we can't play sports right now. Good question, Jay. Mm-hmm. Go, ahead, go ahead, Lucas. Uh, Coach Aaron Proy here. Um, who was an assistant that had a major impact on your career and what did they say or do that was impactful to you? Um, I think K- Kevin Norris. Um, when I first got into at USC, he was the assistant coach, and I looked up to him because obviously he went to Miami. I was at Syracuse, so he's a little older than me. But he taught me one thing: to be who you be who you are, and don't try to be nobody else. And he stood, and that was his conviction, and it gave me the confidence to step into my own self and who I was, and be comfortable with it. So, Kevin Norris was was the one that kind of for for me, you know, gave me that good advice and being who you are, and and be and have people you know, accept who you are. Kind of coming off that, what what do you do in practice if you, you know, you make a mistake and you just kind of own up to it right away and say my fault and move on to it? Because I feel like a lot of coaches avoid acknowledging that they were wrong. You know what I'm saying? Well, shit, man, we, uh, as, as human beings, we all going to make mistakes. So, you know, we never bigger than any situation. So if I make a mistake or, you know, say anything that that uh, that that was wrong. I'm, I'm obviously I'm gonna say I made a mistake. Just like our players, we we got to treat them the same. So, you know, they hold us accountable. We hold them accountable. And, and being able to own your mistakes is one of the first rules of uh, overall success. Coach, I got a question. Justin Maidenberg from Santa Monica College. Hey, what's up, Justin? How you doing, bro? Good. Thanks for being on today. Yep. Uh, yep. Can you talk about maybe one or two of the biggest challenges that you face other than probably what you alluded to earlier in terms of being labeled a recruiter or telling your younger self 
that uh, you wanted to have more patience or just not being a, a head coach as fast as you wish you uh, probably could have been or wanted to be? Well, one of the biggest, one of my biggest challenges is one to obviously get somewhere uh, fast. And so, you know, I, it just takes, like I said, patience, but also in that time, you know, learning, uh, always get a chance to learn a little bit more about the game, uh, strategies, techniques, uh, all types of things. Um, the second thing is identifying who you are when you become that leader of that program. Um, every day your, your views change and how you want to present yourself as a head coach. So just being able to come up with a, who you are and, and your why is very important as well. Hey, Coach, can I – I want to kind of, like, expand on that. As an assistant coach, you might have, like, on the court maybe one thing or, you know what I mean, like, you can't cover every aspect. Coach is going to have one thing. You have something else. As you're preparing to be a head coach, what can assistant coaches do to kind of sharpen up the other tools in their belt? Like, what specifically can you do to be great on offense as a coach if you're coaching defense every day at the school you're at or vice versa? Well, uh one of the things that, for me, uh, Isaac, doing the scouts, for me, you know, obviously each coach, you're going to get your scouts. So you get your nine, 10, 10 a year. But learning. So what I try to do is all the teams we play against, I try to keep their, their obviously I keep all their offensive plays and just go back to studying. Um, so if, if I am teaching the zone and I'm more focused on that side of the ball, I want to keep my own offensive toolbox sharpened. So I just go back and watch all the my, my old clips of old schools. Um, I got clips when I was working with Marty at a, a Pepperdine when we playing against Montana in 2012. So I just try to go back and steal. If you got something for me, man, I want to steal it from you too. And then incorporate it and name it my play. So that's what I try to do is learn as many different offenses and see what works and see what doesn't work. Good stuff. Hey, Coach. Hey, Coach Hart, this is Lucas Worrell, Ashland University. I'm a GA there. Um, you said Ashland? Ashland University in Ohio. Okay, nice to meet you, Lucas. Um, I have two questions. My first one is, what are some bad recommendations sometimes you hear about young coaches entering the profession? Or like well, bad advice or something that you wouldn't really agree with? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it just depends. It, but – I don't think it uh, – uh, one of the misconceptions is obviously delivering a player. Um, if you have to deliver a player as a coach, the pressure is going to be on you to, to keep delivering and delivering and delivering. So I just think that it's very important um, that whoever staff you join or want to join, that the head coach gets to know you and know your worth. And then obviously um, make yourself a valuable commodity to that staff year in and year out, day by day. So um, that's my advice. And then my other question is, um, for you, like, how has, like, a failure or a parent failure set you up for, like, later success in coaching? Or, like, do you have, like, a personal favorite failure that you learned in coaching or, like, a story? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, being a, being a recruiter and a coach, the two go hand in hand. But um, recruiting somebody really hard, Lucas, and not getting them, but also understanding um, – that that player won't stop you from, from your ultimate goal. And then it also taught me that your, your best uh, re recruitable players are the ones you have. So don't put so much eggs in the basket of the other players, but also love yours and, and get the ones you have better. 
and that that kind of eased the burden on when we do lose recruits. Awesome. Thanks, Coach. Yeah. Piggybacking on the recruiting uh, conversation, Jay, what's something that you look for when you evaluate? I think that's, you know, at your level, <clears throat> so often there's top 100, top 150, so there's there's so much that's looked at that you guys don't have to evaluate. You just have to recruit, figure out how to get them. So what would you say is just something that you look for when you actually do evaluate? Um, and then secondly, how do you handle, and you kind of touched on it, but how do you handle this new age of, everyone's about transferring. How do you make sure you're recruiting your own? Well, the one thing I look for um, is uh, resiliency and toughness and how you are as a teammate. Um, how you are as a teammate is a, is a perfect example of who you are as a person. So if you come out the game, you're not giving your teammates dap, you whining, you're always saying something to the coach, talking back. That's a negative uh, turnoff. Now, it's exceptions to that. If you shack size and you're dropping 50s, well, Shoot, those players, honestly, those are called contract extenders. Um, the elite level players can get coaches contract extensions. So um, it's two foes, but that's the reality of it. And the uh, reason why I said Shaq, because he, he came around one time and, ha and haven't came around since. So uh, it's a rule to every, everything. But um, you just got to know what you're looking for, man, and want to keep a good working environment with your players that you have and the players you bring in. Um, and then if not, you're going to have what you said. This is the market of transfers and, and, and grad transfers. So you just have to adjust. There's nothing to complain about because, again, as a coach, um, a head coach can leave and go get a job uh, at another power five or assistant can leave as well. So we can't cry when we're moving and then cry when they start moving. I think if we're a little bit more honest with these players in the beginning, we'll have probably a little bit less transfers. You're still going to have that. But shit, now grad transfers is the free agent market. So um, every coach needs one of those grad transfers to kind of keep his job going. So we just have to adjust with the times. It is what it is. There's nothing we can do about it. Well said. I think that uh, <clears throat> I would assume that resiliency and toughness and being a good teammate are things you look for now because your boss but because of how you were, you know, you want to find people that you know that that's what got you kind of on the map as an NBA player and from one team to the next team to the next team. So there's probably a certain amount of, um, you know, just a liking that you take to that. And then obviously if they have the talent to go with it, then, you know, you can have a really winning player. So uh, it's kind of an underrated thing to, to recruit and to look for. So uh, I love that you said that. Uh, let's we'll go ahead and do the share screen. Let's go to the basketball side. We'll have some more questions after you do that. So let's let you share your screen and and take us to the lab a little bit, Coach. All right, I just want to um you know uh, share a little bit of a USC's two three zone defense is a la Syracuse. Uh, being out for this quarantine, you got a chance to study. I've been studying our zone that I played in and kind of got some clips of our, how we want to play it at USC. This year we wasn't a good zone team. Um, and that was partly due to we had like a lot of young players, but I just want to go over some of the rules and principles of a two-three zone and uh, share with you guys. Hold on one sec.
All right, so uh, just want to start this. It's a lot of misconception with the zone. Um, 20, 15 years ago, you playing zone, obviously, um, to take away the three. Now, you play the zone for us. To, I mean, you, you, you play zone to let people shoot threes. Now, we use the zone to take away the three-point shot. So here we playing UCLA in 2006, and it's just the IQ of players. Jonah Matthews was a freshman. De'Anthony Mel was a freshman. So they, they got it. They understood. They was taught well in high school. Um, Bryce Offer, one of the all-time three-point shooters at, at uh, UCLA. Lonzo Ball had deep range. TJ Leaf and Aaron Holiday were all shooters. We couldn't match up with them individually one-on-one, so we won zone, but we extended our zone. Um, one thing on the zone, if you see Shaquan Aaron right here in your, your screen close to you, um, he's at a position on the court that's called basically 80%. So when you play in the 2-3 zone, your wings could either be 50%, that's in between the, the block and the three-point line, 80% is closer to the three-point line, and 100% is where Washington plays Coach Hopkins. They just take away the, the three-point shot on initial catch. It ain't even no rotating. So it's, it's a scout-driven um, zone base, and here's uh, some of the clips that, that um, we had that was successful in this game. That's perfect. Uh, pick and roll hand off. Jonah sits on the lap of the pick and roll. Middle. Now, when the ball goes middle, um, Chimezi came up. You're supposed to hold down and then walk up to that middle middle catch slowly. But regardless, the, the strong side wing, Elijah Stewart, is supposed to crack down on Thomas Welsh. And now, if you look at it, we're all matched up. We're basically in a four-man shell with uh, the center guard and his man one-on-one. We teach back tap. So if he do shoot it, uh, Jonah Matthews should come from behind and block it, and De'Anthony Melvin is there to, to tap it if he dribble. Jonah took the middle pass, got out of there, high hands. Guards come in, basically packing that paint and making them swing out. Now, when you run, when it's a middle pick and roll and zone or horns action, we teach our guards to sit on their legs. Your job is, if he do come off that screen, wall up and get on his body and get over the top. But more importantly, I want to send Bryce Soffer back to my partner. I really don't want him to use the screen. So he has range, so Jonah's going to be a little bit more extended. Gets in there and touch the ball. De'Anthony Melton is Isaac Hamilton who's shooting 50% from the three-point line. He started. You see where Shaquan Aaron is? Our wings are extended because we look at De'Anthony Melton. It's almost like a 2-2, a 4-1, where everybody's on that three-point line. Here, so we not we are unafraid of, of, of contested tools. We just hate wide open threes. So if you get in there, get a layup, we don't panic. We adjust and keep playing. The goal is to make you shoot contested tools. Here it is, Lonzo Ball had ridiculous range, so Jordan McLaughlin is up higher because it's scout-driven. Um, and then since there's nobody in Elijah Stewart's area right here in front of us, he's kind of in between. So we try to shoot, run the horns, send them back to my partner, and contest all shots.
Here it is. Jordan McLaughlin is, is extended higher. Now, anytime that ball goes short corner, you can do two things. Um, Chemezi did right. I'm gonna see if I can rewind a little bit. So if that if if Thomas Welsh is on the block, that will be an automatic double where the X5 will come over. He should be three-quarter him anyway. And then the bump back guy, he's going for immediate trap. But and UNLV, and, and speaking of Coach Gerg, in my own notes, something I'm going to do when I become a coach is uh, Chemezi Metu will get to the corner because everybody can shoot threes, and Elijah Stewart will come back and play the center. And that's what, that's what the amoeba was at UNLV. Um, here he came down and met the ball and trapped it, but it will be Metu will go there, and, and Elijah Stewart will come back to the middle at the center. De'Anthony will tag the roller and then bump back out. So you're saying, Jay, that you like the amoeba concept? Yeah, I do like the amoeba concept because, you know, if with with in today's game with with the range, everybody range is crazy. So if I'm playing, if I'm playing Damian Lillard and he's shooting at 35 every time, that that four has got to come out and be there. But when the ball gets skipped to the corner, just have X five go to the corner and that guy come back while the other guy is holding until you come back and then he'll bump back over. So I like the amoeba. Um, it keeps body on body. The plays don't yep. kill you. Open people do. Yep. You talked about this a little bit, Jay. Um, 50%, I think you said 20% or 80% it was and 100%. Is that based on, on kind of like the scouting concept of Rondo, Wade, or Curry type of thing? Yep. And I want to punk you. So, like, we got blasted by Washington this year. They, they if, you, if you study their zone – they start at the three-point line, so your, your first catch is going to be 32 feet out. So even if you do try to make that pass to the corner, X5 can get there to steal it, or um, it's going to be a, a tougher pass that I'm going to make you pick up and go over your head. So um, we switched more tradition this year and, and bringing our wings up all the way because, again, we don't want no threes. And then all zones, man, they just had to have a lot of activity. Um, this is one of our best segments right here. We was down by 12, switched to the zone, and then we had the length at the bottom. Um, one, one thing is I, I learned at, uh, at Syracuse, man, we didn't do any drills for it. Is people always ask, how do you rebound out the zone? And Bayheim just used to tell us, go get the damn ball. You know what I mean? It's, it's, you're not getting boxed out. So, you know, it just you got to have guys just willing to run in there and go rebound as a team. So the guy right here, strong side, he started at about 100. Elijah Stewart is there on catch. And we want skip passes. If you're skipping it and it's a soft pass, we try to encourage the guys to go still. That was Amoeba right there. So why it just happened um, by chance. So number two, he was playing a little wild, but I'd rather take his activity. His name was Malik Martin. Number two, he's the forward on the on by Colorado's bench. So he's actually just his activity is crazy, but watch how they switch. He's here, he's active here, he's moving, and then the forward went there, and now he just took the center position just by default. So, you know, they that that's something that we never practice. They just start doing it in the game, and then obviously studying with Gerg, that's that's one of the main things of the amoeba. 
See how McLaughlin tried to get over that screen? X5 go out, weak side box out. Anything free throw, now Now normally that's supposed to be a double, right? The, the forward is supposed to go down and double. But since number 44 was a good three-point shooter, we saying go ahead and get that tough two because the tough two is not going to kill us but the open three. So instead of Stewart going to double down, this is scout driven. He just is there to dig and stay home on the shooter at 44. Cards are real active up top. Now, on the side pick and roll, if it's a regular side pick and roll, my partner, the other guard, helps me. Weak side wing, you got to be there on catch. We don't even want you to be late. We'd rather you skip it straight to the corner. X5 will have to get off the, the, the big and get to the corner. But on that pass, we try to get a steal. Um, and Elijah, it shouldn't even been a catch. We want him to be up so... Um, we give you the illusion that we denying, but any uh, side pick and roll that forward is supposed to be there on catch. He did a good job, and granted, he's a freak athlete, so I guess recruiting freak athletes is good too with Lynn. One of the goals for us in the zone is to make people catch and look over their head. If you do that, that's, that's going to give me a time to get in position to, to play the zone. So we want you to put that ball over your head and, and think about it as opposed to making direct passes. Now, right here is anytime you run the side pick and roll in the zone and there's nobody in the corner, we try to force it down. So it's basically in a man-to-man -man like ice or blue in the pick and roll. So since the corner is not filled, we want that forward to come up. Number 30 should come up and send them down and try to get a little trap. Now, if the corner is filled, then obviously we can't do that because that'll be an easy pass to the corner for a three-pointer. So anytime in the zone, if it's naked and they try to run the side pick and roll, we want to trap that just so we could be aggressive and not being passive in the zone. And I'm assuming Jay, the back line guy, 30 is the one that's yelling that out on the screen. Right. He's saying screen coming. He got to yell it out because if the, if the corner is empty, that's his responsibility. And we want him to come all the way up as well. So we teach scramble mode until we get back to our spots and the goal is obviously to contest everything. That's the side. That could have been a down, but it wasn't. So Jordan McLaughlin over the top. My other guard is over there. Elijah Stewart, number 30, is supposed to be all the way up, taking that pass number zero, try to get a steal, and try to throw the ball over the top to the corner. He played it right, took away the sideline. So when you come up, you come up with the right hand closeout, and your hand go to the sideline because you want to make the pass go over the top. So when you do close out, you're supposed to take away the sideline so it could be a live pass over the top. So now um, what we notice is in zones, when your offense becomes stagnant, you don't know what to do in terms of uh, – so this is weight. This play right here is just typical uh, dribble you out, come up to a side pick and roll. Chemezi as a freshman that was really good. He was calling out the play before it even happened. Real high Q player. So it's just a to a pick and roll. So you see over the activity, 
he came off, he didn't use it, but Julian Jenkins was supposed to send it back to Jordan McLaughlin, and they try to bottle the ball up with this weak side forward up on number zero to shoot it. How often in the game, Jay, do you guys run zone? Man, we run we we run both. I mean, this year we was a better man team. Um, I mean, actually, we was probably top two in the Pac-12 and overall defense in our man. But normally, uh, Andy, whichever defense is hot, that's the one we'll stay in. So we'll run both defense. If the zone is getting us good stops, we'll stay in it. You know, one thing about, obviously, coaching, everybody had a different philosophy, but you know, being able to adjust on the fly, normally that coach will win or nine times out of 10. And uh, having two defenses is always good because players are really good nowadays. 